I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. Christmas in a cult, which is uh, very organized, actually. <laughs> thought I was an amateur detective for much of my young life. Until you've lived in somebody else's skin, you can have no real idea. The next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. J.J. Lee knows what it's like to have his expectations of holiday magic run into the reality of life. He's been there when a Christmas just can't clear the expectation bar, and some of his writer friends have too. And over the years, they've told him about their Christmas misses. Now J.J. has brought together some of those stories in Better Next Year, an anthology of Christmas epiphanies. J.J. will be here with contributor Sonia Larson to open the program. And if you're looking for a break from the holiday cheer, how about some crime fiction? In a half an hour, I'll talk with two mystery lovers about the titles they promise will deliver maximum holiday diversion. And the mystery writer Asma Zahanat Khan closes the program. She stood out in a crowded field since her debut a number of years ago. And she's now two books into her new Blackwater Falls series. And today she tells us about the latest installment in that series, Blood Betrayal. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. By this time of year, we've been knee-deep in the Christmas cheer for weeks. The songs, the ads, the expectation. But what if you're not feeling it or, or life isn't conforming to the jolly picture we see around us? Those less-than-ho-ho-ho experiences are gathered together in Better Next Year, an anthology of Christmas epiphanies. J.J. Lee is the editor of the collection, and he's in our Vancouver studio, along with Sonia Larson, who contributed a story to the book. Hello to the both of you. Hello. Well, the holidays always come with so much expectation, and it's hard to think it could ever live up to that. J.J., how did the idea for this book first come to you? I think it came two ways, if that's possible. Uh, So I teach a lot of memoir and nonfiction, And for some reason, uh, over and over again, students kept coming up with these, like, the the worst, the worst Christmas stories possible. Just really brokenhearted, disastrous Christmases. Number one, I found them extremely compelling. Maybe I have some empathy. Mm -hmm. I kept laughing. I don't know why. I kept laughing about how dire their circumstances were were. And part of it, I I have to say, is probably because of the incredible pluck, especially uh, when the protagonist in the memoir piece is very young. There's this incredible pluck uh, to the character. And I just uh, loved it. I just love that these people that I was working with in class or or meeting on the road uh, on book tour or at events, literary events, had these incredible Christmas stories. And these younger ser- versions of themselves were just surviving such dire circumstances. Mm. And I just uh, I just thought it would be fantastic to sort of burst the bubble on the perfect three percent that we share on social media, and to finally have a book that really 
you know, actually has a long tradition. Uh, you know, bad Christmases are always good Christmases when it comes to story making. Well, I have to ask you this. Given your uh, laughter and, and the entertainment you drew from other people's horrible Christmas experiences, how would you describe your own attitude and feelings about Christmas? Um, mournful. It's really funny. It's both fond and mournful. And I, I only just at the book launch that where Sonia read, uh, I, I gave a talk, just a little, just to, to frame the book. And I remember talking about how all the good Christmases fade. And so you always have to mourn them. And I think that's why we get so geared up for Christmas is to make it perfect again and to have that moment. And so, uh, of course, we fail. And I think that's what you just, in your introduction, is that's what exactly happens is that it never meets what we hope for. And so there's always loss at both ends. The future and the past is just, it's just this strange um, incapacity or inability to reach what we're looking, you know, trying to achieve. And so that's my attitude. Uh, always seeking magic, believing it, it's there and never quite finding it. There's a beauty in that. I mean, there's a beauty in our, in our, in our stupidity, uh, maybe, that we think that it'll be different this year. Not too bright. Not too bright. <laughs> Sonia, what did you think when you were approached about writing a story about Christmas? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I was flattered, of course, because when JJ asked you to do something, you're like, yeah, let's do it. Mm. But I think I was really interested because I, I thought, oh, I don't really have any Christmas traditions. And then when I really thought about it, kind of the bad Christmas almost is the tradition. Um, you know, my family was a little bit unorthodox, and we tried lots of different ways to sort of avoid the Christmas hype. And yet, it is inevitable. It is, uh, you know, it's inescapable for all of us, even those who really don't celebrate. And I think we see that in this anthology is uh, people are trying all different kinds of ways to deal with Christmas, hit it head on, um, ignore it, uh, work on Christmas. It's not even my religion. And yet, boom, there it is, Christmas, you know. Um <laughs> It's not even my religion. I really enjoy that. That's very funny. I should. I have no business celebrating this thing, and yet exactly. here I am. JG, your story in the book is called The Harlequin Set, and it revolves around the Christmases that you had as a child. Uh, very interesting. I went to high school with you, JJ. I was years younger than you, but this would be Christmases that your younger sister, who was a friend of mine in high school, would have been having as well. And And those celebrations on your grandparents' farm, they in, in, in many ways, they fit the template of a big, happy family all together. So tell us about those. Well, the Harlequin set is, speaking of mournful, like ex exactly that for me, because first of all, the farm is gone. And that's the, the, the number one, I think, leg of the story is that, that it disappeared. And along with it, so many of the memories, there is a problem with the good Christmas. The good Christmas is easily forgotten because it, it, it it's a warm haze. Like you have these sort of fragments. And um, so what happened was uh, at the core of the story is that one day my son was looking at a set of dishes that we had when he was very young. And he said, these are depressing. Uh, and I didn't know what he meant. And then I picked up the dish and realized there was a dilapidated farm on the print set, like on the d decoration of the plate. And it just sent me back to a childhood moment of one of those quiet moments at Christmas at my, at my grandparents' farmhouse where I could see the dishes in the cupboards and on the table. And I just yearned for those days and they were gone. And so there was like this, it was this strange sense of loss on, in so many directions, the loss of memory, the loss of the event themselves, the loss of the dishes, the loss of the farm. 
And yet, uh, by writing out the story, which actually, um, you know, I didn't really know what it was about. I was just writing about dishes in an exhaustive way until I realized that I had created my own tradition that focused on dishware uh, mm. at Christmas. And we, the Harlequin set is this mismatched set of dishes, and we bring them to the table every Christmas morning to celebrate uh, with our friends who are neighbors on the third floor. We're on the seventh floor. And uh, this, this set of mismatched cream dishes represent the hodgepodge of dishes that my, my grandparents had. And I didn't realize I was emulating that process of repeating that gesture uh, with the dishes. And it crushed me. It kind of mm. crushed me that, I, or that that's, that's what I was doing. Sonia, you spent part of your childhood living in a commune. What was, what was it like to spend holidays there? Uh, very chaotic, I would say. <laughs> Um, That was very interesting when I was writing this story to think about what was the difference between celebrating Christmas in a commune uh, where we were broke, uh, there was a very uneven distribution of labor. It's like, oh, we're sort of creating this utopian society, but the women are all going to cook Christmas again. The women are going to do all the dishes again. Um, So a lot of kind of tension around how that holiday would be celebrated and and actually created and a lot of you know anxiety about sort of creating a different tradition so yeah my Christmas uh, in a commune was um, not great I remember going back to school after the holidays and having a kid say to me so you didn't even get any new clothes for Christmas (laughs) and then I contrast that with um, Christmas in a cult which is uh, very organized actually (laughs) so these sort of unorthodox communal experiences that have very different sort of organizational structures to them. In your story, Sonia, it feels like anyway your parents are both very much on the same page, uh, commune-wise, if that's a term, mm-hmm. uh, right? And then and then once they, they sort of split both in their thinking and actually split and, and get divorced, you say that uh, that began the tearful long-distance call years. How did that shape your feelings about Christmas? Oh, uh, I mean, profoundly, right? Very, very profoundly that Christmas uh, was this sort of time of, I don't know if I want to say dread, but definitely a time of reckoning, right? That there is this expectation of the perfect gift, the perfect moment, the perfect day, and yet fundamentally knowing that on that day, um, I'm going to be in tears, right? I mean, that was just that was just inevitable. That my joy one place was always my disappointment another place. Mm-hmm. So you know that that distanced perspective, I think, has followed me, well, basically my entire life, really. So. Mm-hmm. JJ, I want to get back to something you were alluding to. That one of the things that happens with a holiday like Christmas is that from year to year. We're very aware of how things change, and in a way, the rose-colored glasses fall from our eyes, and the inevitability of time passing looms large. So tell us about your Harlequin set and what it showed you about your own feelings about change. I mean, I'm kind of somewhat ashamed of myself on in, a in level because I, I'm terribly nostalgic and morose because of it. And it makes me feel kind of bad that I keep on dwelling. Uh, I also, you know, part of what I do at this time of year is I write a Christmas ghost story for On the Coast on, in CBC, uh, British Columbia. Yeah. Uh, and this, the sort of these, it's always being haunted, you know, and it just, it makes you wonder if you're not paying attention to the present. 
the actual thing that you're actually living in an appreciative way and that you're always hearkening to some other moment, either the future or the past. And so actually it makes me feel kind of bad uh, because uh, I haven't learned quite the, the idea of being present in the moment, though writing itself. And I think, you know, I think Sonia would agree with this, that, you know, writing about the past sort of brings you to a kind of clarity. The sense of humor emerges, the sense of, I don't know, just appreciation of the earlier version of yourself surviving an event or or even thriving in an event. I think that that that's what makes the book so joyful is that you, it's just this incredible, you know, the, the sardonic viewpoint that the, the that the writers, the contributors have about what happened to them is just it's beautiful. It's mm. a beautiful thing. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm not I, I love Christmas. Uh, but I also feel bad about loving Christmas so much. If that makes any sense? <laughs> that it feels like seem reasonable. It doesn't seem reasonable yeah. to like Christmas so much. Well, it feels like you are living in the present, then, right? You're you're not too far in the uh, in the past. We should spend time together. I I forget the past, and as my wife will tell you, I don't pay enough attention to the future, and I just live in the now. We should spend a Christmas together. <laughs> oh, it'd be great. And then we'll write about how horrible it was. Yes, we and have then to. we'll put it in the third or second edition of this book. There you go. Rose-colored glasses drop December 26th. <laughs> hard. Right away. Just right. hard. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's other stories in this anthology, JJ, that show the gap between this, you know, expectations versus reality. Like that story, uh, it's called Vienna, which is about three generations of a family going to hear a Christmas choir. What happens in that story? Oh, it's a lovely story by Joanna Baxter. A earnest daughter wants to please a slightly grumpy mother whom she loves dearly. And through that expression, uh, books uh, uh, them to attend a, a, a choir performance in a beautiful cathedral in downtown Vancouver. And the mother is European and very used to things just like the Vienna Choir. And instead, the choir comes out and they're wearing reindeer antlers. And so the disappointment ensues. Sonia, uh, I mean, speaking of disappointment, in your story, <laughs> Tortue de Noël, there's a, a drug-addicted roommate that you have or that the, yes. the, the protagonist has. And the Tortue in the title are his pet turtles. Yeah. How did Christmas Eve that year shape up for you? I think in a very surprising way. You know, I was a young adult and I thought I was an adult. And then I have this moment of realizing that really um, I I am still feeling like a child and and yet not perceived by the rest of the world as a child. So I'm really kind of in this in this crisis between these worlds of of who is supposed to give me this Christmas that I want. And and the answer is no one. And that leads to kind of a really panicked situation which also uh, you know, I really think of that as a, sort of a miraculous Christmas. And I think the miracle is not just um, the gift that my roommate accidentally leaves behind uh, that gets me through the through the night, but also that understanding of I just need a small piece to make it through. I just need a small miracle. And I see that over and over again in this anthology, that people are looking for, of course, they want perfection, they want joy, but really, they just need a sign that they can make it through this year. Mm. Um, And that's this incredibly hopeful and also, in some ways, incredibly pragmatic perspective that people end up having to take to get through rough Christmases. 
JJ, your Chinese family, they would mix traditions, mm. uh, you know, their own with Christmas traditions. That does not work in a story entitled BVJ, which stands for Buddha versus Jesus. What happens in this story? I love that story. It, it's a confrontation. Uh, Wiley Ho is a lovely writer on the North Shore here in Vancouver. And she meets uh, the very devout family of her partner-to-be. And her faith, uh, the fact that there's a Buddha uh, in their space where they eat, is considered sacrilegious to these uh, in-laws-to-be. And so there's this long sort of contemplation and negotiation about how I'm going to deal with these people and how do I feel about having the Buddha and who's going to be the insistent one here and how do they make peace. And they And they try to make peace through a Christmas holiday, which sounds like a poor idea uh, between two faith groups to try to sort it out right on Christmas Day. But uh, it's it's kind of a lovely story about her working through and figuring out how to be with these people. It's also lovely because her son is this beautiful peace negotiator at some level. He can only do so much, of course, but he, he does his best. It's very beautiful. Yeah. And it's just such an innocent uh, push to togetherness and finding a way to be together. I love it. Sonia, there are expectations of family this time of year, that, that somehow they will fill the void of loneliness. And in your story on that lonely Christmas Eve in Montreal that's in the back of your mind when you go to your father's house to spend time with his new family, what happens? Well, I think um, that is sort of a, the confrontation of different traditions when you think, um, oh, I didn't grow up with any Christmas traditions. And then in my stepmother's family, they open presents on Christmas Eve. They mm. have, uh, you know, tea sandwiches on Christmas Eve. So already this kind of feels like this is not how we do Christmas. Um, and that's sort of based on them also going to Midnight Mass. So that's also another big culture shift for me. And this family that's very open and welcoming. And yet I am definitely the other in that situation. And there is, that's insurmountable. There's really no way to get around that, no matter how hard I or or even the rest of that family tries, is that I am not the child who's going to uh, wake up to presents from Santa. <laughs> so I think that is that sort of togetherness and loneliness, again, a very common experience, I think, of being in the heart of a family and yet not feeling like you belong. That whole, hey, what about me vibe going on there, yes, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. And, and how kind of problematic that is. I mean, you you don't want to be that miserable child, and yet you are that miserable child. <laughs> yeah, you're not better than this, but in the back of your head, you're like, I'm better than this, and yet yeah. uh, your actions uh, prove otherwise. I'd be remiss not to say that there's, there's some fun in this collection of stories as well, right? Throughout many of these stories, there's optimism, there's hope, uh, even if it's, you know, a little, a little bit in a, in a tattered state. All these people, you know, um, save Christmas. They all save Christmas. And so, I just think that's amazing. So there is some value to the Christmas spirit, JJ. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's, that's, that's what caused it. <laughs> <laughs> the cause of and solution to our problems is that's Christmas right. spirit. That's right. That's right. Uh, Sonia, the subtitle of Better Next Year is An Anthology of Christmas Epiphanies. Is there something about the season that can prompt a reckoning? Well, I think there is something about recognizing that there is this ideal 
that you are not going to be able to achieve, but that lives, you know, burning bright in your heart that, uh, as JJ says, you are always going to be a little bit melancholy over. And to recognize both that sadness and also that optimism, that feeling of I am making it through the darkest days. I mean, that is really the heart of what Christmas is, is how do we make it through these darkest days, right? I mean, you know, co-opted from pagan rituals. but um, mm. And so I think there is something about when you know that you are going to make it through those darkest days that is uh, kind of uplifting in and of itself, you know, that that sometimes the miracle is just making it through. And that's not a small miracle. And I think over and over again in this anthology, people find that hook to say, I'm going to be okay. Not the okay I wanted, not the hallmark okay, you know, but, but I'm going to find a way to be okay. A version of okay. Yeah. Well, thank you, JJ and Sonia, and um, Merry Christmas? Question mark. <laughs> Merry Christmas? Ha- question happy mark. holidays. Happy holidays. <laughs> question mark. Joyeux Noël. The question mark is key, whichever way you say it. That's right. JJ Lee is the editor of Better Next Year, an anthology of Christmas epiphanies, and Sonia Larson contributed to the collection. They spoke with me from Vancouver. I'm Francesca from Frankie. We play dreamy indie psych rock. We're from Vancouver. And right now I'm reading Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. So the book is about, it's a fiction, sort of like a historical fiction. And it's about a daredevil, like female aviator who is a fictional character and it's the story of her kind of coming up from the early 1900s then juxtaposed against that is a modern day tale of a really really famous sort of unknown twilight-esque actress who um, gets the chance to play the role of this unforgettable daredevil aviator and it's like this parallel between these two women's stories along with just really amazing world and character building and it's just like a really beautiful and empowering adventure i was actually trekking in nepal when i started the book and i was on a bit of an adventure myself i tend to go often sometimes by like recommendations and honestly it was just a book that had been recommended and had great reviews and i love reading um like contemporary female authors. The writing was amazing and the storytelling was just so intimate and intriguing and beautiful to me. I just really got pulled into the world. If you like historical fiction and you like adventure and you like drama, um, I I would definitely recommend it. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. 
Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Uzma Jalaluddin. And I'm Marissa Stapley. And we're the co-authors of Three Holidays and a Wedding. And you're listening to The Next Chapter on CBC Radio 1. If you love mysteries, any time is a good time to read one. But there is something about the holidays and winter coming on that makes them particularly appealing. Maybe all those detectives, lawyers, and criminals neutralize the enforced good cheer. And who better than two mystery writers to make their recommendations for this time of year? Angela Misery is the author of the Portia Adams Adventure Series. She's with me in Toronto. And Sam Weeb is the author of the Wakeland Detective Series, and he's in the Vancouver studio. And to keep today's chat especially mysterious, today's book list has been under wraps, <laughs> especially from me. So uh, first look, here we come. Hi, Angie. Hi, Sam. Hello. Hello. So, Angie, I'll start with you. How does reading mystery and crime fiction mesh with your own writing? Oh, God, I love it. I mean, I've been a mystery reader my whole life. I was a Nancy Drew fan, a Sherlock Holmes fan, a Hardy Boys fan, like, grew up that way. Thought I was an amateur detective for much of my young life, much to my parents' dismay. The South Asians aren't really into children detectives. But, I mean, I am a journalist, and that's part of the reason I am a journalist, is I like to solve questions. I like to solve and chase down clues. So... It's a really important part of my life and most of well, most of the angles of my life. That's so interesting. I read a lot of Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys, mm-hmm. but I was like, I'm going to let them do the oh. solving of the mysteries so I can just be lazy. It didn't make <laughs> me a good journalist. Uh, Sam, have you always been a mystery and, and crime fiction reader? Yeah, pretty much. Both of my parents were big fans of like the old, you know, Fawcett gold medal paperbacks like John D. MacDonald and Dashiell Hammett and all those guys. So, um, yeah, I grew up reading all of that stuff. In the studio, Angie is nodding along knowingly. I am. You are speaking her language. Lots of respect here. All right. So let's uh, let's get down to talking books. Angie, you have four books. That is all I know. Mm Mm-hmm. What title do you want to start with? I'm going to start with The Village Hall Vendetta, if that's okay. That's by Jonathan Whitelaw, and it's the second book in the series, uh, The Bingo Hall Detectives. And what I love, I mean, the mysteries, I'm going to say the mysteries are interesting. There's a murder. You get to chase it down. It's, it's really interesting from that perspective. But what you're going to love about this and the series is Jason Brazell, who's a journalist. They call him a hapless journalist on the back cover. I don't mm. like the word hapless journalist. I do not take that well. And his <laughs> partner in crime, or solving crime, is his mother-in-law. Amita Khatri. And what I found when I first read the first book, I was like, well, I'm Jason. I'm like the hapless journalist who just falls into a mystery and then has to solve it. But it turns out I'm more Amita. It turns out I'm the uh, mother-in-law who just gets her fingers in everything. Really cool energy between these two. Really cool um, small town, chase down the murderer. Hilarity ensues. These two are just like... Uh, what I read a review online was cheese and chalk, and it's a good description. Hmm. Right? Comedic crime fiction. I didn't even know it was a genre. You love this. You've, you've opened my eyes. <laughs> All right. Sam, what book do you want to talk about first? Well, I'd like to start with Code of the Hills by Chris Offit. 
Um, this was a book recommended to me by Andrew Hood at the bookshelf, uh, Guelph, Ontario's awesome independent bookstore. And uh, it's the third book in a series about Mick Harden, who is a military investigator who comes back to his hometown in the Kentucky Hill Country, where his sister, uh, Linda, is the sheriff. And the two of them have, you know, this real push and pull where people will talk to Mick because he's not law enforcement and he's from this this very tight-knit uh and very old community where you know people know several generations of each other's families and everybody's business is kind of uh the community business um i just love the way that Offit writes and the way that he depicts violence is very uh, i think honest it's never over the top and it's it's really a great book about community and looking at what community means in 2023. Okay, so if you like community, good writing, and you like your violence non-gratuitous, this is a, a good book for you. Uh, Angie, what's the second book you've got? I'm sorry I'm giggling over here, but that, that was a great way to put it. I'm going to riff off Mick, because Mick reminds me a little bit of homicide detective Al Sullivan, who is the main detective in The Golden Gate by Amy Chua. So this book is set in 1944, um, and it's a bit of a noir meets a mystery, and I love that about it. But what... Again, I'm very hooked on detectives. Al Sullivan is mixed race, half Mexican, half Irish Catholic, took his mom's name, and is one of those guys who passes. And because I am also one of those humans who passes as a South Asian woman, despite the fact that all my family is South Asian, I, I feel a lot of that tension that he sits within, which is that he knows he's getting rights and abilities in 1944, which he wouldn't usually as a Mexican. And he's navigating that while actually you know, being part of those conversations, which I very much relate to, is that people will say things around me thinking I am white, not brown. Um, and that is a really good like center for how he does his um, detective work, because he has that code switching ability as a detective. So the mystery of this is there's a murder of a presidential candidate in a, in a, a hotel, which relates to a murder from a, a, a decade ago that also happened at that hotel. So you have the main character, who's this homicide detective, Al Sullivan, but then you also have this second narrator that comes through interviews as she is, is brought in to be talking about this murder. Her name is Genevieve Bainbridge, an older grandlady, and she is quite a different voice from his. And it's a really interesting way to balance out what is happening in this murder mystery. I was surprised all the way to the end, which is hard to do with me. I usually don't get surprised. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that that depth of, of knowing in 1944 what this guy would have been up against and what he's dealing with and the insight he has is the fascinating part of the story. Out of curiosity, uh, these two voices mm. that are interestingly juxtaposed, is it one chapter is one voice and another chapter is another voice? Are they separated that way? No, most of it is him. And then when he interviews her, you hear her narration of mm -hmm. the first murder of 10 years ago. And the grand lady is being interviewed because her three granddaughters are suspects. And it's, I've got some shopping to do. I know. It's a really good one. Just loved it. And it's Chua's first mystery novel. And I'm just really excited to see what she comes out with next. Okay. Sam, what is your next book? Well, my second book is Hard Rain by Samantha Jane Allen. Um, her first novel, Pay Dirt Road, won the Tony Hillerman Prize and the Dashiell Hammett Awards. Uh, so Hard Rain is the second book in the series featuring a third-generation private investigator named Annie McIntyre. Uh, she is somebody who has moved back to her small-town home in Garnet, Texas, uh, there's been a flood due to environmental uh, issues that, that are very relevant today. And um, in this flood, her client was rescued by a man who was washed away 
So Annie's tasked with finding this uh, this guy, and she doesn't know if he's alive or dead, or how he relates to her client. It's just a fascinating book. I love the private detective genre, and I love the history of that genre, and I feel like Alan is writing the, the next generation of that. So we've had really tough guy detectives, and we've had really tough gal detectives. And Annie is this character who is not superhuman. She's not, you know, a super sleuth, but what she is, is connected to her community and empathetic and people open up to her and trust her. And she's just really dogged. She's just the kind of person who will not ever rest until she has answers. And um, it's just a fascinating book and it feels very 2023. And she herself really embodies, I think, a lot of the concerns that young people have about finding their niche in the world. Okay. All right, Angie, your third book. Sam, I'm loving that we're just riffing off each other because you said dogged and I got some dogs. So (laughs) (laughs) That Others May Live is a Sarah Driscoll Gendana um, series. uh, Well, the book is the eighth book in the series about FBI handler Meg Jennings and her canine partner, Hawk. And I love a book about a dog. I mean, I love a book about several dogs, and there are several (laughs) dogs in this book. So the main part of the story is about the canine search and rescue unit in Washington, D.C. So a 12-story condo building has collapsed. Again, very um, contemporary, very now. Um, And most of the story is spent trying to find if people can be dug out of that and how they can be saved while the structure could still collapse on them at any moment. So there's a lot of tension there. This all happens in under a week of them digging through, trying to find with the dogs um, people to rescue. But the other part of the story is then why the condo building collapsed and then the manhunt that follows. And um, this story is really well told in terms of like architectural stuff. So if you are like a nerd for why things fall down, Great story for it. If you're a nerd for understanding how canine um, units function, again, super detailed in here. It made me go back and read some of the earlier stories, really enjoy them. Um, and I, I would highly recommend this series. So it's That Others May Live is the latest one by Sarah Driscoll and Jen Dana. If, you know, I did a little work on a show called Hudson and Rex, and if the oh, popularity yeah. of that show <laughs> is any indication, oh. this book is going to be I loved Hudson a mega and Rex. hit. People, oh. people love it. People love the canine, we the canine do. cops. All right, tell me, Sam, your third book. Well, my third book, and and first of all, let me say I also love a good dog. Um, my next detective has a uh, a cat, two cats actually. Um, so this is Double Eagle by Thomas King. It's the seventh book in the Thumps Dreadful Water mystery series. Thomas King, of course, is a great voice of letters, but he's also a guy who just really loves. Longmire and Jesse Stone and that kind of like dad mystery books. Um, my friend Ben Ruthman, who's a great author himself, yeah, he, he calls them uh, cozies for emotionally stunted men. And <laughs> it's it's something that just fits a need uh, for, for readers. Um, so the mystery is less important. It, it takes place at a, um, a coin show uh, where there's a very rare double eagle coin that uh, is rumored to be circulating. But the real star of the book is Thumps and the relationship that he has to the community members in the town of Chinook, which is in the States, but bears a whole lot of similarities to Guelph, Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love the the hangout feel of these books. Just the characters trying to make sense of the world now. And, you know, they have this real small town Western feel to them. But it's also, uh, you know, you can just see things creeping in like technology and uh, and just all the sort of rapid changes that we uh, we have to deal with. 
We have time for a uh, a short snapper. Um, what do you got? What do you got for that, Angie? Well, I have Gull Island by Anna Porter, and I'm going to warn you: you're going to hate everyone in this story. I hated everyone in this story by the oh. end of it. I really <laughs> did. Um, but it's one of those gothic horror psychological mysteries. The mystery is not the biggest part of it. It's how deep you go into your own psychosis. Quite frankly, the the main character in this um, in this story is her name is Jude. Uh, she's the first person point of view, um, and she goes to an island to find her father's will after he dies. Where in the first story I told you hilarity ensues, horror ensues in this entire thing. She gets trapped on the island. She discovers horrible things. You kind of start to hate her because she's got a lot of issues going on. But you also start to bring it into your own life and think about, if I lost this person, how would I dig up all these emotions and all these you know trials that I went through with them and still like retain some sort of humanity for them as they are dead and I need to continue on with my life? So it's like a, an internal search, more of an internal mystery than it is an external mystery. And there's some seriously disturbing um, descriptions in here, so be very careful if you're not into seriously disturbing descriptions of death. But if you want to hate someone at the end of a story and learn mysteries about how they understand themselves and their relationships with their families, I recommend (laughs) Gull Island by Anna Porter. (laughs) And so you hate everyone, but there's enough about this book that keeps you going. Oh, it's a mystery. I didn't know what was going on most of the time, and by the end of it, I'm like, oh, and I love books that make me go, oh, but it was disturbing. So it's like Seinfeld, but <laughs> mystery and horror. Yes. What is happening right now? Oh, my gosh. Really? Yeah. All right, Sam, you're, you're a short snapper. Well, it's so funny that uh, Angie says that mystery isn't the biggest part of it. And I think that, that that goes for so many of our books that, you know, they just have so many other values besides just the plot. Um, my snapper is Deus Ex by Stephen Mac Jones. It's the fourth book in his series about August Snow, who is a half Mexican, half black uh, ex-Marine and ex-cop from Detroit. And he's in a relationship with a, a woman from Norway, so... Part of the book takes place in Norway, and then part takes place in uh, the Mexican town neighborhood of Detroit. It has the best first line of any book that I've read uh, this year. And if you're into that Jack Reacher, Lee Child, writer of wrongs style of uh, of crime novel, I think that you're really going to like Deus Ex. All right. Are you not going to give us that first line, uh, Sam? Are you just leaving that out there? I'd like to help Mr. Jones sell some books, so I'm not going to share it, but it's terrific. Uh, please check it out. It's a choice. All Bye-bye. right. That is a choice. I will say that uh, both of you, your passion for reading and, and particularly this genre really shines through as I talk to you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Angela Misri is the author of the Portia Adams Adventure Series, and Sam Weeb is the author of the Wakeland Detective Series. Angie and Sam's recommended mystery titles are on our website, cbc.ca slash the next chapter. In 2015, Usma Zahanat Khan switched gears. She left her careers in international human rights law and magazine editing and started writing fiction, and quite seriously. Over the next five years, she wrote constantly, sometimes two books per year, and all of her work has gained critical acclaim, many fans, and awards. And in that short time, she's written a four-part fantasy series. She's devoted six books to a murder mystery series starring Canadian detectives Issa Khatak and Rachel Getty. Last year, she began a new crime series set in Blackwater Falls, a small Colorado town just south of Denver, 
and it's the home of her new sleuth, Detective Inaya Rahman. Osma Zahanit Khan's latest book in that series is called Blood Betrayal, and Osma joins me from Washington, D.C., where she lives. Hi, Osma. Hi, Ali. It's great to be here today. All right. Welcome to the next chapter. I, uh, I mean, I'm kind of blown away by this book, as were many people. The New York Times book review calls Detective Anaya Rahman a fabulous character. For anyone who doesn't know Anaya yet, how would you describe her? I would say that she's a person who's very dedicated to her principles, to her worldview, to her faith, her family, her community. But what drives her most is the desire to see justice for underserved and underrepresented communities. Okay. That is a description that you don't usually hear associated with a police detective. I know it's true. She's she's quite unique, very unique. in her space, in her genre. Tell me why you chose this little uh, Colorado community, Blackwater Falls, as a setting for your crime series. So I had set my first crime series in Toronto, which is my hometown. And uh, my editor and I were talking during the pandemic about what I should try next. And she said, I really think you would reach a broader audience if you attempted an American setting. And given that I'd been living in Colorado for almost 15 years, I thought, well, this is a setting that I know well, and everything else in the book is going to be new to me. So it would be great if the atmosphere was something I was familiar with. And it also gave me uh, that claustrophobic feel of small town policing, where there's very few marginalized people, and so they're over-policed. So all the elements let me put this crime story together. Tell me how the crimes that Inaya is solving in Blackwater Falls, how those compare with the ones that the detectives Isa Khatak and Rachel Getty solved in your previous books. So in the first series, because I come from a background of international human rights law and the protection and preservation of human rights is still my greatest passion, it sort of fuels this thread of continuity in all my work. And Isa and Rachel, although they're investigating crimes um, that are local, usually a murder, all of those crimes are connected to a global human rights issue. But in my new series, we were all grounded under lockdown at home, and I had a lot of time to think and observe the the American political and cultural milieu at that time. And there was a lot of um, conversation, uh, very heated conversation, very polarizing conversation around communities of color, over-policing of Black communities, Um, Latinx communities at the southern border, and of course this talk of the Muslim ban that the Trump administration mooted and then attempted to make reality. So as all these issues were swirling together, I thought my new crime series would be very much of the moment and more topical if I adjusted my focus slightly from human rights issues to civil rights issues as they were weaving these threads together during the pandemic and after in the United States. Yeah, as you mentioned the you know breadth and scope of your work, I should mention to our listeners that uh, my guest Osma holds a PhD in international human rights law with a specialization in military intervention and war crimes in the Balkans. No big deal at all. I'm sure that was very simple <laughs> to get through, um, but but uh, it's clear that that does inform your work in 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 a variety of ways. I thought it was interesting that Inaya, the, the, this character Inaya Rahman is not actually a police officer technically. She works with the community response unit called the CRU, which is then part of the Denver Police Department. But tell us what kind of work the CRU does within the department. 
So I had based a community response unit on the Denver Police Department's bias unit or anti-hate crime unit. And so I wanted to pose a very tricky problem for my unit, who are mostly police officers of color. And that was to say that they're wearing the badge and sort of applied the uniform, although they're detectives. And yet they're all motivated by the same desire to protect and serve the communities that they come from. And it's kind of a paradox because those communities don't trust the police with good reason. And so although my detectives think that they're doing good work and want to reform the system from within, they not only experience, um, they run up against roadblocks from their colleagues in the police force, but they're also experiencing, they're also experiencing a kind of distancing from their own communities where there's pushback and where people are asking them how they could possibly serve in the police when they know firsthand what happens to communities of color in many instances. So it gave me a lot more um, dramatic potential for all of the characters. It gave a chance to go into their inner worldview and see how each of them would resolve this conflict. And it also gave me a chance to talk about policing and community relations and how you build bridges when there's so little trust. Hmm. What are you trying to say in this book about meaningful change within law enforcement with with the series about uh, about police officers? Um, I'm not sure that I'm trying to say something as much as I'm trying to get people to think deeper and differently about issues that they may have encountered um, just through television news and then had kind of a knee-jerk response to that. So what I'm really trying to do is bring a broad range of perspectives about policing and police reform through all these different characters. But what I'm trying to say really is that until you've lived in somebody else's skin, you can have no real idea of the impact of over-policing. And so it might be easy to say, you know, I support the thin blue line, or it might be equally easy to say all cops are bad. But there's so much more in that debate to discuss. There's so much more to understand about how and why communities of color are suffering under the American police system. Mm-hmm. Well, I asked that question also because Inaya Rahman is dedicated to trying to bring about meaningful change within law enforcement with the help of her colleagues. The resistance she meets is not just your classic resistance, it's also physical and emotional abuse. And it sometimes feels as if there's nobody from police officers to people in the communities that she she tries to work with, even her own mother, nobody really appreciates her work. Do you think it's possible for Anaya to effectively do both parts of her job, serve the law and serve the community she's working with? That's the uh, million-dollar question. Mm-hmm. And and it, it's the source of most of her internal conflict and her tension. And I think the the what I'm aiming for as a writer over the course of the series is I always start my characters in one place. So, for example, Inaya is completely committed to the job, does believe she can work within the system and that she can make a change. And then throughout the course of the series, she's confronted with this notion of systemic problems and institutional reform, which maybe she hasn't grasped as fully as she should. So I don't have easy answers for her, but I want to put her through that struggle to see uh, if she still believes the same thing, you know, five, ten cases down the road. Hmm. Fathers play an important role in this book, including Anaya's father. He's a defense attorney, uh, originally a refugee from Afghanistan, and you capture his sort of, you know, quiet powerful, respectful connection that he has with Anaya. Uh, I knew from your acknowledgments that you lost your own father uh, not that long ago. My condolences about that. 
And yeah. I wanted to know also how much is Anaya's relationship with her father a reflection of your own? Anaya is the character, the one character I've written who is closest to myself. And not only in this series, but in the previous series, I, I reflect my own father a lot in, in the characters, both Isahatek's father, who's deceased, and in Anaya's father, who's very much alive. And what was interesting to me about Hasib Rahman, Inaya's father, is that he's from Afghanistan. He's a Pashtun or Patan male. And that figure is normally associated in people's minds with the, the Taliban. So someone who's controlling and very hard and very hard on women, oppressive in their mindset generally, which comes out of that Pashtun tribal mentality. So Hasib Rahman, to me, reflected my own father, who comes from that same background as I do, or Pashtuns or Patans, and yet um, he's the complete opposite of what people assume that ethnicity to be. He's mm -hmm. gentle, he's supportive, he's open-minded, he talks with, and he has not just Anaya, but he has two other daughters, and he talks with his daughters all the time. His daughter is in a very dangerous profession, typically male-dominated profession, but he supports her dreams and her aspirations every step of the way. And yet he also retains those protective fatherly instincts toward her. And that to me really reflects my own father's demeanor, very supportive, very gentle, very mild-mannered, uh, full of life, full of love. And I wanted to put that on the page again, just part of our reality, but also part of that process of speaking back to people's assumptions. You know, I, I really enjoyed the book and the end in your acknowledgement, uh, you know, the, the last person you thank in your acknowledgements is your mother. I lost my mother two years ago while I was writing a memoir. My memoir was also focusing very much about family and my father. And, and you wrote to your mother, these stories are all because of you and dad. So I wanted to ask you just as we wrap up, how have your parents been responsible for these stories that you've written? First, I want to express my condolences for the loss of your mother. And then I would say that my parents raised me to value and appreciate the richness of the Islamic tradition. They both were very literary. They loved books and poetry, literature. They both were multilingual. And they, from a very young age, they were hosting these wonderful mushairas, poetry recitals at our home, bringing local and international poets. And these were occasions of great celebration, and it taught me from a very young age to respect the written word and to understand the power of the imagination. And my parents were constantly teaching me uh, about Islamic history, the touchstones of Islamic history, the great monumental achievements of the Islamic civilization. And all of that, I think, my love of language, my love of history, culture, faith is interwoven throughout all my books. So I absolutely always have to acknowledge them because it came from their teaching, their dedication to their children. Asma, thank you for this. So nice to chat with you today. Lovely to chat with you too. Thank you so much. Asma Zahanet Khan is the author of Blood Betrayal and she spoke with me from her home in Washington, D.C. That is it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews and Trevor Carter. Thanks this week to Danielle Duval, Emily Chiarvesio, Sarah Cooper, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, Uzma Jalaluddin and Marissa Stapley on the fun they had collaborating on the romance Three Holidays and a Wedding. 
And B. Kwame and Bridget Raimundo bring us children's book recommendations for the holidays. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.